This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we centre and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today, we have clinical psychologist Amanda Donnett on the podcast. Amanda is a psychologist working at the intersection of infant feeding, mental health, and early parenting. For too long, discussions around parental mental health have pitted parents against their children in the battle for happiness. Amanda champions finding solutions that honor the needs of both parents and baby, bringing fierce compassion to perinatal mental health. Her human-centered approach empowers families by providing insightful, practical, and relatable information and support. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. We're really excited to have you on. Hello. Hello. Familiar faces. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been ages since I've seen you at work. (laughs) We are actually lucky enough to work with Amanda. I'm so excited to be on the podcast and really pleased with everything you guys have been doing in this space. Um, And it's lovely to have an opportunity to actually sit down with you and have a longer conversation than the little sound bites that we have with each other as we pass each other in the hallways or over the lunch table. So um, thank you for having me. So I guess first question for you, Amanda, is can you tell us a little bit more about what what it is that you do and what in particular sort of drew you to specialize in this field, this kind of perinatal maternal mental health sphere? Uh, well, so my business is called Spilt Milk Psychology. Um, and as you mentioned, I work at that intersection of infant feeding and mental health. So I've always had a really strong interest in women's psychology and feminist discourse analysis. And that sort of thing is, was where I kind of got my introduction to psychology uh, and have always been interested in that space of women's health. And then um, and working in emotion regulation was sort of my background um, prior to having children. And then I had my own children um, and particularly some of the early experiences that I had in the perinatal period really influenced me becoming really interested in this space and especially some of the gaps in the care that we have in the perinatal mental health field. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's how I mm. kind of came to be involved in perinatal mental health more generally. So, Amanda, Tell us what are some of the key mental health challenges for women in the perinatal period and how common are these? So I think this is one of those things that we think a lot about all the different stages of transitions that we have in our life. And we give a lot of emphasis to those really big transitions of things like adolescence um, and for women also menopause. So as we come into um, sexual maturity, that we have these big hormonal changes and we also have those hormonal changes as we go through menopause. But the other big time in a woman's life where they may experience these huge um, hormonal shifts and hormonal physiology impacts is also coming into that um, perinatal space and that and into motherhood and it's a huge transition it's the transitions into motherhood because it's not just one transition and ellie taylor talks a lot uh, about that concept um about the idea of we have transitions in into um, parenthood where we transition out like so many identity shifts and identity changes and it creates so many new and unique challenges um and i know that this podcast that, that i'm on today is talking about the experiences of women um and there are some some challenges that come in the perinatal space that really strongly impact, that have a very strong gender 
um, component to them because it's often the time in, in a woman's life when she first bangs into her biology. So that can be a really big, um, have a really big impact for women who maybe don't identify really strongly with a, a gender and, and existing on that kind of gender continuum. At Spilt Milk Psychology, I'm very supportive of LGBTQI experiences. And that's one of the challenges in the maternity care space and the perinatal space is if you're looking at having a baby but don't identify as a woman, maybe identify non-binary or maybe don't have a strong gender identity whatsoever, that can kind of be something that really can bring up a lot of challenges. It's also the first time for a lot of people when they bang into the patriarchy with full force mm. and a lot of the expectations that come with gender that may not they may not actually have had to face before, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in their family dynamics and family of origins, whether that's in bringing up a lot of those um, other socio-cultural stories that hit. So we've got this kind of socio-political stuff going on as well as this biological changes and then all the hormonal physiology changes that come just with the actual process of becoming pregnant and having yeah. a baby. So there's lots and lots of challenges there. Yeah, on that note, Amanda, I noticed that um, when you mentioned some things about like patriarchal attitudes and things like that and issues in the perinatal space around care, there wasn't actually a lot of uh, research that I could find on the experience of neurodivergent women who are parents. Like a lot of the research on parenting is around uh, like geared towards neurotypical parents of neurodivergent children. And just yes. looking at stuff for autistic mothers, uh, a lot of the studies were only published in the last couple of years. And looking at the ADHD side of things for mothers as well, um, one study actually mentioned that we know more about driving and ADHD than we do about parenting and ADHD in research. So I just really wanted to highlight that with exactly what you're saying here. And it's a huge, huge issue in that space where there is just such a lack of research. And again, when we look into the value that's given to women's health and women's psychology more broadly, and then when you layer that on with the, the research in neurodivergence as mm. well, the, mm. the studies and things become minuscule. What you're saying there around, you know, these transition points, and I love the phraseology that you use there, you know, banging into your biology for a lot of women, not just neurodivergent women, exactly as you say, it might be the first time in their experience or their life where they've really had to actually connect with the fact that they're living in a human body that, you know, and in a female human body, and, you know, that might carry its own set of challenges if that's not how you identify. But also for our neurodivergent women, as you say, Monique, there is really no guide or no kind of manual or information that's readily available for how do you actually manage these major life transitions, particularly if you're someone who has trouble with transitions, particularly if you're someone who has used that kind of masking or, you know, just being able to, okay, I'm good at work. I'm good at this. I'm good at that. And I've learned how to manage myself when it's just me. Now I'm pregnant. Now I have a baby. Now I have all these other things that I have to care for and do and not having that kind of research or plan or manual as to how to navigate that, um, I imagine would be a big contributor to maternal mental health issues in that period. Yeah, hugely. And as you said, like it's one of those things too is as as a culture, we're quite disembodied. We don't live in our bodies um, particularly well. And for a lot of neurodivergent women that I work with as well is that adolescence can be a really tricky time with adjusting to the changing 
um, female form and that pregnancy can be one of those stages again where suddenly you've got boobs that are swelling or leaking and you've got parts of your body that are aching and behaving in ways that you're not used to them doing the experience of morning sickness and nausea the sensations of having a baby moving inside of your body during pregnancy can be incredibly distressing if you're someone who has either limited um, interoceptive like that body awareness of those internal sensations or if you've got a highly acutely acute awareness of those sensations as well so it can make some of the the challenges or expectations from caregivers during that maternity period as well if you're being asked questions like have you felt your baby moving um, it's like well what does that mean that's a very vague and ambiguous question or is your baby moving as expected like what I don't know am I noticing the baby as much as I should be if I don't notice my body at all in general that kind of that expectation can then cause kind of a hyper focus or, or a concern about I'm not going to be vigilant enough um, mm. to what's going on so there can be all sorts of challenges there as well and there's so much focus in the preparation for parenthood on birth like that's one of the big things. It's a little bit like when people get married and they put a lot of time into thinking about the wedding and not a lot of time into thinking about married life. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit like with, with parenting is where there's a lot of focus given to preparing for giving birth. And it's very easy to get fixated on that because it feels really scary and it feels really overwhelming and it feels really new and novel. But then once the birth is done and dusted, is suddenly you are left with this newborn baby who perhaps hasn't actually had much mentalizing done about where um, you know where they're going to sit in your world or what that world is going to look like or even just what those expectations are. Um, you know, as mentioned, the area that I work in a lot is in infant feeding and and breastfeeding a baby is a learned skill. It does take a lot of practice and it's a it's a skill that we traditionally learn through observation. But in our Western culture where families are quite disconnected, oftentimes for many women in our culture, the first baby that they ever see breastfeeding is their own. They may not ever see a newborn baby being breastfed at all because a lot of newborn babies don't go out a whole lot or don't have a lot of exposure to the broader community. Um, and so unless you happen to be a part of a family where you might have an older sibling who's had a baby or someone else in your extended family who's had a newborn baby that you've been around, you might not actually have seen a baby being breastfed or understand what the expectations or know how, you know, what's a normal number of times for a newborn baby to feed? How long should a breastfeed take? All of these things that when they were a part of our broader societal experience, we may have had lived experience through observation and it would be a part of our world. But the culture that we live in, we actually don't do that a lot anymore. So there isn't the opportunity to get that um, observational practice and, and have some of those expectations. Uh, and if anything, the information that people have is quite misleading, <laughs> you know, that, that mm -hmm. some of the expectations can be um, quite, yeah, just out of date and incorrect. And it's interesting too is because when it comes to antenatal education, it's quite difficult because we actually do have a lot of resources and there actually is a lot of information out there, but it can come back to those expectations too, is I know that even before I had my own children that I sort of thought that breastfeeding a baby involved putting a breast in a baby's mouth. I didn't think about the fact that it involves sensory regulation. It involves stabilizing a baby's position. It involves oral motor functioning. It involves coordinating a suck-swallow reflex. It takes all of a parent and all of a baby coming together in a synchronized way in order to be able to facilitate feeding this 
tiny human and that there's so many variables that can contribute to there being issues and concerns within that. But I was just, when people would say, "What? how are you intending to feed your baby? I was like, oh, you just choose whether you want to put a boob in their mouth or a bottle in their mouth. And that's all you have to do. That's the process that determines how your baby is fed rather than it being this kind of complex interplay of lots of different factors. So, Amanda, could you talk us through what are some of those key kind of mental health challenges that lots of women in that space experience or the most common and and how common are they? So, perinatal mental health concerns impact on about one in five women and one in 10 men in the perinatal period. And that's something that I think is really important to sort of recognize is what those concerns are. So the most commonly diagnosed thing is postnatal depression. That largely comes down to how we diagnose. Uh, I work in the perinatal space. I very rarely get a referral that says something other than postnatal depression from a general practitioner, because it's one of those things as well around expectations is if you present in front of a primary care provider with um, a mental health concern and you've just had a baby, they diagnose it as postnatal depression, (laughs) where actually what you might be experiencing might be exacerbation of a pre-existing mental health concern. Um, It might be the re-emergence of a previous mental health consideration or something that you've struggled with in the past. It could also be um, lots of things other than depression. So anxiety is actually considered to be or thought to be now probably more common than depression in the postnatal period. Uh, And our actual DSM criteria doesn't differentiate between postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety, that the symptoms for postnatal depression include postnatal anxiety. Um, And so you'll get a diagnosis of postnatal depression, even if you're presenting more with an anxious presentation. Other really common perinatal mood concerns is lots of women will experience trauma whether that's a birth trauma, um, whether there's trauma that's re-emergence of a pre-existing trauma as well. But birth trauma is a really common experience. And in the population that we're here talking about today, neurodiverse individuals, I think, are particularly primed to be vulnerable to either the experience of new trauma or the re-emergence of existing traumatic experiences that are are re-triggered through the vulnerability that's required as a part of birth. So that's one of the big things that can come up. Also, women who have pre-existing diagnoses of um, psychotic illnesses and bipolar disorder are also at a greater risk of relapse or re-experiencing some mental health concerns in the perinatal period as well. And one of the things to look at there too is, as I said, the statistics are about one in five women in the perinatal period will experience a a mental health, a diagnosable mental health concern. That goes up to one in two if you have a partner who has a diagnosed mental health perinatal thing. So if you have postnatal depression, the likelihood of your partner having postnatal depression is one in two. And similarly, if you have birth trauma, then your partner is at a one in two chance of having either postnatal depression or PTSD or something else as well. So it is those things that we've got to look at all parties involved in caring for um, these little, little people. I'm wondering, Amanda, and obviously this is a very um, layered question and we could talk for hours and hours just on this one thing that I'm about to ask, but um, generally speaking, I know that your work uh, is really focused on and it's a lot about the um, kind of symbiotic relationship in the household, particularly between mother-child dyads, but also, you know, in the whole household. And if you've got, say, mum experiencing uh, postnatal anxiety, postnatal depression, um, exacerbation or re-emergence of previous mental health issues, or, you know, having a trauma response from birth trauma or, you know, prior traumas, 
Can you talk us through a little bit what that functionally looks like and how that kind of symbiotic relationship between parent and child can be affected by those kind of mental health issues? Yeah. So this is, that's a really, it is a layered question and it's absolutely at the heart of what I do because it is those things. Winnicott, who is one of the fathers of attachment type theory and in, in, in infant mental health, talks about that idea of there's no such thing as a baby, there's a baby and someone, and that we cannot look at infant mental health without considering parental mental health as well. And I would say the flip side of that is also true, is there's no such thing as a mother, there's a mother and someone, because a mother outside of the context of her baby is not a mother. So we need to be looking at these as, as dyadic systems and then as family systems approaches. Um, and it is one of those things of it, it absolutely echoes through the impact of what's happening between a parent and an infant, impacts on the other parent, impacts on relationship discord, impacts on accessing help seeking. Um, and it brings to light the perinatal period kind of puts under a microscope, all of your pre-existing coping strategies and all of the pre-existing relationship dynamics that exist. There's an article that I love, I'm trying to think of what her name was, where there's a woman who's speaking about her experience about postnatal depression. And she talks about how in her relationship with her partner, that she was the one who was responsible for the emotional well-being of the relationship. And there wasn't space for me to be unwell, let alone space for me to recover. Because if I'm not the one holding my relationship together, then my relationship unravels. And particularly that can be sort of applied more broadly to the household. If I'm not the one keeping everything organized and everything together and maintaining all of our systems for coping, if something starts to unravel, everything unravels. And I think one of the biggest things and one of the reasons I'm so pleased to be on this podcast today is for a lot of women, they are undiagnosed because we know that diagnosis of neurodivergence is incredibly under underrepresented in women. And a lot of that is because we're actually really good at coping. Humans are incredibly resilient, we're incredibly resourceful, and we're incredibly functional. So we can come up with all sorts of funky ways to accommodate and adjust for our own quirkiness and our own unique um, strengths and weaknesses. And that what can happen is when you throw a baby in a mix, the baby might not necessarily be able or willing to participate in whatever coping strategies you have in place. And, um, and when it comes to parenting and parenting expectations, particularly if there are differences in expectations or strategies for coping of the two different caregivers for a baby, that can also then exacerbate distress. So if you've got different expectations about how to manage wakefulness in a baby, um, so if you've got one parent who, who says, well, we just need to get this baby into a routine and sleeping in their own room and, and sleep training, and you've got another parent who's like, well, actually, co-sleeping with this baby would really work well for me, that that's going to cause a whole lot of relationship tension and, and things can kind of unravel quite rapidly. And Amanda, you mentioned that in the perinatal period, if you have pre-existing uh, like mental health conditions going through that period, that you could be more likely to experience mental health uh, issues going through the perinatal period. Does this then affect neurodivergent women more as like I know the, some of the statistics around neurodiversity say like, for example, with autism, like 80% of people on the spectrum are likely to have some other kind of mental health condition like anxiety or depression anyway. This is, again, one of those things where we don't really have the stats to back it up in a particularly clear and concise way, um, but it makes absolute sense that for women on the spectrum that they would be like autistic women and ADHD 
ADHD women will have more potential struggles in this space because of how our society is set up as well, but also some of the coping strategies that neurodiverse women may have developed, for example, over-functioning as a way of managing or over-organizing, over-planning. And so that's really hard to do with a baby. Or if... Um, if some of the ways that you manage, like you might have strategies that you use for managing sensory overwhelm, and hopefully we'll get a bit of a chance to talk more about that in depth in a minute. But like often avoidance, avoid we like avoidance gets a really bad rap in a lot of psychology. Like actually avoiding stuff that's unpleasant is a really helpful coping tool if the thing that you're avoiding is avoidable. So a lot of people will actually develop those things about, oh, if I don't cope in noisy environments, I just don't go to noisy environments. If I don't cope with high levels of physical touch. I just don't hug a lot of people or spend a lot of time engaging in high levels of physical intimacy, that we can actually build a world that works for us. And that's not pathological. And I can actually be incredibly functional for you. But suddenly when you're in part of a diet and the other half of that diet has different needs than your own or different levels of expectations than your own, is it can be, that can be kind of create all these things. Like, oh, my usual coping tool of avoidance isn't going to work particularly well for me right now. This might be a really good opportunity for me to stop and talk about one of the main frameworks that I work from, like a lovely analogy that I like to use for parents in this space, not just neurodivergent parents, but it often really resonates with them about the concept of breathing underwater. So when I have parents come to me in clinical practice, they often will describe the experience of parenting as feeling like drowning feeling incredibly overwhelmed, uh, feeling unable to escape, feeling very, very stuck. And what we can tend to do as a society is to pitch self-care as getting out of the water is what we do is go, you feel like you're drowning, let's pull you out of there. And so we come up with self-care strategies that disconnect parents from their parenting identity. So we say, you're getting really overwhelmed with the kids, you need to go out and go for a walk. Wait till your partner gets home and then go and get your hair cut or spend some time with your friends. Or let's get grandma to come over and take the baby for a walk so that you can settle yourself down. And absolutely, when we feel like we are drowning and parenting is that diving into an ocean um, of needs and expectations and, and it's very, very busy and, and has got a lot of complexity involved in it, we do need to spend some time on the shore. But if the only time that you feel safe is when you're out of the water, you're not going to want to go for a swim. And what it does is it can we can accidentally, in an attempt to help people to cope by pulling them out of their parenting identity, what we can do is accidentally reinforce the idea that parenting is distressing and not being a parent is where you get a sense of relief. So when we're looking at coming up with workable long-term solutions for parents, we need to find ways where we can absolutely give them time to sit on the shore. Because there's some things you can do on the shore that you can't do underwater, like building sandcastles and sunbaking. Um, and we want to make time for that. It's absolutely important that parents do have the ability to spend time separate from their parenting identity, but we need to have time where they are in parenting and okay. So it is those things like we're looking at strategies for managing sensory overwhelm. Some of that can be having some time where those sensory needs aren't as high because you're spending some time on the shore, but some of them have to be, how do I breathe underwater? How do I scuba dive? What do I do so I can take a breath while I'm in it? Because otherwise we can end up in these spaces where um, parents feel like they're drowning, feel overwhelmed, and they can, and it can really trigger that fight or flight reflex um, as well, which is when we do start to elevate potential risks yeah. both for parents and babies. Also, you know, talking about that concept of having to leave the water to the shore as sort of reinforcing that, you know, the only way I can regulate is if I separate from my child. 
And I feel like it can also reinforce that idea, again, particularly for our neurodivergent mothers, that you're bad at this, you're bad at being a mother, and actually you need to remove yourself from your child to be able to get in a place where you can be good at being a mother again. I love that breathing underwater analogy because it's that kind of ability to say, how can I actually be the version of mother that is right for me. And I don't, I'm not trying to be, you know, this perfect overachiever of a mother and know everything. And how can I still stay regulated within that space? Yeah. And I think it's that thing, isn't it? Is it's kind of like the difference between learning to breathe underwater, learning how to scuba dive versus thinking I'm going to be so perfect. I can just walk on water. I, you know, I'll never get distressed. Yeah. Rather than scuba diving, I'm going to grow gills and turn into a mermaid. Yeah, yeah. no, I just don't. I won't be overwhelmed. I won't ever struggle. Yeah, Yeah, I just, I just won't find this hard. Done. (laughs) Done. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? The easiest problem to solve is one you don't have. I think too, in some of the research that I did find around like being an autistic mother, uh, some of the primary things they actually found was uh, fear of being judged by other people about parenting, feeling a lack of confidence and competence in their own parenting, and actually a lot of difficulties communicating with uh, health professionals around um, their children. And dealing with, yeah, dealing with society's conceptions of, oh, well, you're autistic, therefore you can't be a parent, number one. And number two, you can't be a good parent. Yeah, and it's it's one of those spaces where I think we need to change that conversation and we need to change how we communicate and talk about this. And I think that's where having that spirit of compassion and thinking about really being able to talk about these topics in non-shaming and non-judgmental ways. Um, and really at the heart of CFT is that idea of de-shaming, um, that we actually, we don't choose what our capacity is. Um, and often in the parenting space, I think I think one of, one of the biggest misconceptions and one of the biggest things that causes issues is when parents present to health professionals seeking assistance saying, I'm not parenting the way I want to be. Maybe I'm yelling at my child and becoming incredibly emotionally dysregulated, or I am getting that flight fight response triggered. I do. I just want to run away. I don't want to be a parent anymore. And so they get put into parenting skills training. And they do that trying to become an expert. I'm going to listen to all the podcasts. I'm going to do this. Like you are not yelling at your child because you didn't realize it was a good idea. You didn't, you're not doing that because you didn't think that there might be something else to do. And particularly oftentimes my neurodiverse parents are the ones who have listened to all of the podcasts and know all of the strategies, but they're having trouble implementing them. And what I say to those parents all of the time is this is not a lack of skill. This is a lack of capacity. So, like, the ability to stay calm in the face of a screaming baby isn't because you didn't think that being calm was a good idea. It's, oh, I'm lacking the capacity to stay calm. Either there's too much load on my nervous system or I don't have access to enough supports or actually my mind is spinning at a million miles an hour because I'm trying to take on all of these expectations about all the things that I'm meant to be able to do in a day or what I need to stay calm or my space is chaotic or I'm, I'm struggling with the tactile and sensory a load or this is just too, too much going on. It's like, this is a lack of capacity to cope rather than a lack of skills as to know what to do. Um, because I find that it's, it is one of those things. I'm wasting my time teaching parenting skills to someone if the actual issue at play is regulation, emotion regulation. Uh, and I'll often tell the story. This isn't something that just 
affects neurodiverse parents is I tell the story of when when my boys were little so my my three boys I had a a newborn a two-year-old and a four-year-old and we had gastro go through the house so if you want to talk about sympathetic nervous system load the smells (laughs) I was holding someone over a toilet or on the toilet myself like there was lots going on and I made myself a cup of coffee and it was too hot for me to drink so I burst into tears and threw it down the sink. I feel that in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> and I have lots of clients with me. Yep. Yep. That is not because I am a shitty barista. I did not need someone to come into my kitchen and teach me how to make a cup of coffee. What I needed was capacity. What I needed was kindness. What I needed was reasonable expectations of myself and of others. And to go, oh, anyone in this situation would be overwhelmed. The reason I can't think clearly is bec- isn't because I'm a shitty problem solver. Isn't because I lack any skills in being able to to um, parent my children or make a cup of coffee. In this case, is it wasn't a lack of skill. It was a lack of capacity. I was tired. I was burnt out. I didn't have enough fuel in the tank. And a calm mind thinks differently. So particularly for. Um, neurodivergent parents, but for any person, a calm mind thinks differently. So whenever you're overwhelmed, if we can really focus on getting you calm, is then you can problem solve so much more clearly. If you ask me now, how do you cool down a cup of coffee? I could tell you 10 different things I could have done. Uh, I didn't need someone to teach me that. What I needed was to be able to look at my environment, go, why am I not coping and what do I need to do? And what is it that I need to let go of right now? Because um, I am under-resourced or overwhelmed. That's usually it. If if you're under-supported or overwhelmed, then you're going to run out of capacity. And I think now might be a good time to have a little bit of a chat around some of the kind of biological model that I know that uh, the CFT framework uses a lot, which is that kind of balance between our three systems um, in our nervous system and brain. So our drive system, our threat system, and our soothe system. And I wonder, Amanda, if you can just talk us through actually what those things are and how they impact that kind of mental health in that perinatal period. So in compassion-focused therapy, um, Paul Gilbert, who is is a person who sort of developed compassion-focused therapy, um, simplifies down uh, the emotional systems that we run on into this three-circle model. So as with anything, this is a simplification. And there's lots of different ways that we can talk about how our brain works. And this is just one way of being able to understand how our mind works. So when we look at the primary systems that are responsible for um, the different motivations within our, our brain is the CFT model breaks it into three circles and they're very handily color-coded to help us remember them. Um, and each of those three systems is linked with certain neuroanatomy and certain hormonal physiology and certain emotional responses and motivations. So the first one that we have is our threat system. So our threat system in this model is the red circle. And the threat system is one that most people have kind of heard of and might know as our, like, you know, our fight or flight or fight, flight, freeze, fawn um, is it's And it's the system that's responsible for all the things that we run away from. It's a run system. And now our threat system is designed to keep us alive. Does not care if we are happy, not its job, just wants to keep us alive. Happy for you to be an anxious mess as long as you're alive. That survival is the key. It is linked to the hormones of cortisol and adrenaline primarily. And it is designed, as I said, to hijack our brain. So it can activate very, very quickly. It's an emergency response system. 
And it is our internal alarm. And it is very, very poor at maths. It's a terrible mathematician. It cannot do probability. It cannot do risk analysis. It just goes problem, 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 problem. It cannot do is this a small problem or a big problem. Is it a temporary problem or a permanent problem? Can't do anything. It's just problem. And so that threat system is designed to keep us alive, but it means it's overreactive um, and it is very easy for it to dominate. Amanda, would you say that if someone is kind of primarily in their threat system for, say, you know, a prolonged period of time, because the way that you were describing it as that sort of emergency system, right? It's an emergency response to keep us alive, to keep us safe. But sometimes we can, of course, be kind of stuck in that threat system, Do you find that that actually changes what people pay attention to and where their attentional focus is drawn to in their environment? Yeah. So which which system that we're in shapes what kind of things we pay attention to. It it changes what motivates us. It changes um, what kind of physiological sensations that we have in our body. It it changes the the things that we pay attention to and things we don't pay attention to. And it absolutely shapes that into what we kind of call like a mindset. So it means that with the way that we think and engage with the world, as I said, a calm mind thinks differently. You notice different things when you're calm. Um, So when we're in that threat space, for example, the more dominant our threat system is, the more rigid we become because we don't have the ability to take on nuance. So we start to get into that kind of very black and white thinking. So we've got that threat system. The other system we have that's also a very go system is our drive system. So we've got the threat systems, the stuff we run away from. Our drive system is the stuff we run towards. It um, kind of runs on dopamine and beta endorphins and is linked to lots of those things. I think if the fight or flight system is our threat system it's the f's the fight flight freeze fawn the drive system is all of the s's sex status snacks sweat and what's the other one anyway um stuff stuff, actually that's it stuff stuff (laughs) so it's all of these things that we're trying to accomplish and 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 get together resource driven so it's all the things we run towards so our so what can tend to happen is we can bounce between when we get stuck in our threat system and if we're very we're still in this kind of go 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 mode sometimes what we do to get out of our threat system is jump into our drive system if i don't want to run away from stuff what can i outrun i'll still outrun it i'll just keep going and we can tend to bounce between and this particularly i find for my adhd clients is that because they do have that hyperactivity is they bounce between threat drive threat drive threat drive running away from stuff running towards stuff running away from and that the running towards can start to feel like a break from the threat system. So they can feel like this is down-regulating or this is coping is by moving from threat activities to drive activities. So this will be often where um, you might engage in self-care activities that feel like going to the gym and catching up with friends and lots of doing, 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 but still really struggle with resting because you will still burn out, particularly if you are a new parent and you are running away, running towards. We clock up a lot of Ks, co-regulating not just ourselves but Mm. our babies, and so then we start to burn out and that's where we can get a lot of that burnout. Um, And that's that's when people talk to me about burnout. It's like, yeah, you're bouncing from threat drive, threat drive, Mm. threat drive. That's why when we need to, when we get stuck in that, we need a third circle, which Mm. is our soothe circle. And I guess it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier in the podcast today around, you know, when you have a new baby, um, sometimes 
these kind of coping strategies that have been quote unquote functional for you, you know, throughout your life and it was just you and you didn't have all these other kind of pressures. If you try and apply the same coping strategies to this kind of different phase of your life or different needs, uh, you know, having to actually not only regulate yourself, but an entire another human being, it's no longer functional. Yeah. And I think too, like working with a lot of neurodivergent clients, one of the experiences that I just keep hearing from uh, mothers is just the constant anxiety. Um, like so many women on the spectrum and ADHDs experience anxiety and are really in that threat drive a lot of the time. And it, it hasn't changed because they then become a parent. And yeah, just that bouncing between the two, uh, but not being able to rest as well when you're a parent simply because of the practicalities um, of sleeplessness and managing children the burnout is, uh, yeah, really constantly reported from what I hear from people. I think that's that thing too, is that um, when we look at kind of pre-baby functioning and post-baby functioning is a lot of our pre-baby identities come with built-in rest breaks. So, you know, most people don't work seven days a week that they have built in. It's like, oh, I work Monday to Friday and then I've got this built-in downtime on the weekend. Um or I have university semesters and then I have semester break. So there can be sort of built-in structure of times where there is periods for rest, where when you become a parent, um, relentlessness is often the word that gets associated with having a baby is because you don't have weekends and you don't even have holiday. Like going on a holiday with a baby just means parenting in a house that you don't know where stuff is. Like that's all it is. That's the difference. So um it, it is that thing of what a holiday feels like becomes very different. So it often, like a holiday as a parent may not change your expectations of yourself, so may not actually give you the capacity to rest. Where pre-baby, it might be that when you go on a holiday, you're like, oh, well, while I'm on holiday, I don't clean and I don't um, do laundry and I don't um, we eat, eat out meals and I'm not responsible for um, the mental load of meal preparation and all of those sorts of things. But you take a little tiny baby with you and suddenly you still are having all of that mental and you don't actually get a rest from that stuff. Yeah. And I think too, I feel like there's a real lack of acknowledgement and even just understanding, like, I feel like women were not really told that much, you know what I mean? Like growing up about the, the mental load that we're expected to have once we reach adulthood, once we're in relationships, once we're parenting and, uh, how relentless that can be um, and that women primarily in a patriarchal society, uh, Western society, are expected to not only often work full-time but then to also parent and run a household full-time and that there are no breaks, there is no rest um, and it's a wonder that most women uh, who are parents uh, burn out and then in particular neurodivergent women who are more likely to struggle with burnout anyway without having children are mm. uh, going to really suffer from burnout um, mm. and I think that's where a lot of perinatal mental health issues are going to come from as well. Well it's it's funny that you say that Monique because you know I think even in our you know cultural narratives like tv shows movies whatever and even our own experiences I recall you know from my childhood and even now I still see it now all the time it's almost this kind of like smug smirking at like oh the crazy mother that's anxious about everything and needs to know what everyone's doing at all times and it makes absolute sense that mothers feel like they have to do that because no one else is doing it 
And it's one of those things I think that there's so many different different dynamics that can contribute to that. When I talk to families about that mental load is there is this idea of mums being bossy. And it's like mums are bossy because they were made the boss and they're the boss of everything. You become the CEO of a household. And when 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 a, like a heterosexual couple cohabitate, regardless of whether they have children or not, women begin to take on more of the domestic load and more of the mental load for the responsibility for the household. Um, the research backs that up. And when babies are added to the mix, even more so. And oftentimes this doesn't come about because men are jerks. This comes about because of um, all of the different underlying internalized misogyny that happens. And sometimes it's done through this, what we call like benevolent sexism, where even just this is again, where biology bangs up against societal and cultural expectation is it's that like the gestational parent usually takes leave because they just gave birth. Um, and if they are the one who is lactating, they it makes sense for them to be the one who is at home providing nutrition to their baby so it's often the male partner who then is returning to work not taking parental leave so what happens is the mother then becomes responsible and because these are learned skills she becomes the expert very quickly and you can have a very cooperative and very willing partner who comes home and with all the best intent in the world gives her a promotion to ceo of the household she's now the boss and they are the very willing casual employee and they turn up and they say how do i help Give me the list. Tell me what to do. And they can win employee of the month every single month. It's not necessarily because they're being unhelpful, but they're still turning up as a casual employee. Give me the task list, but it's your job to do the project management. It's your job to be. And they can often feel like that's a promotion, right? I'm promoting you. I'm being helpful. You are. I'm going to give you that gift of, I will defer to you. I will defer to your choices. But it means then that women are left being the boss and seen as being bossy because they have they, they've kind of taken on that role. But you know what? The CEO needs to get the corner office and the CEO needs to get the bougie lunches and the CEO needs to get the board meetings. And they're often the things that are missing um, for women because they're expected to be the CEO, but they're also expected to be the one on the floor, on the factory floor doing the work as well. And so it's that recognition and oftentimes that shifting of that domestic load and the rebalancing of the mental load isn't about saying to men, you're not doing enough. It's about going, you need to change the role. And I actually am willing to take a demotion out of the position of CEO, but it also means I have to be less bossy because I'm no longer the boss. So I do have to let go of a lot of that control, which can be a challenge as well for neurodivergent women in particular to go, oh, I'm going to have to be a bit more flexible. I'm going to have to let go of and again that can be one of those coping strategies that you've used your entire life is to just be the one who makes the decisions and to be the one who leads but I'm going to let go of a little bit of that control and let's have a board of directors where we both take on projects and often that mental load can be much more easily spread if we split it by domains and this is your project and this is my project and I'm going to give you all the mental load not just the here's your to-do list for the day. Yeah, a um, phrase that I've heard you say, I can't recall when, but, um, you know, I use it all the time. Uh, it's just so apt. You said before, a lot of times when women are really struggling, um, you know, they've got a new baby and they're feeling like, I can't do this. I just can't do this. You know, I, I need to put down the baby. And, you know, you phrased it as you don't need to put down the baby. You need to put down the patriarchy. <laughs> you can still hold on to the baby. It's just about exactly as you explained so beautifully, Amanda. How can we help you and support you to be the mother in your mother-child dyad whilst not feeling totally overwhelmed by everything? Yeah, 
I think too, from what I'm hearing, you know, with this discussion, that a lot of the issues that uh, cascade into perinatal mental health distress in that period, it, it really is societal based. Um, like even just hearing you talk about women going on maternity leave and then being alone by themselves most of the day, like managing this whole new world of parenting and then talking about feeling really isolated. You know, the systems aren't there for fathers, um, you know, or the other parents, the co-parent to actually have that extended leave and really take on that equal role. Um, So, there's just so many systemic factors that are just like messed up. (laughs) Um, And then we have all these women blaming themselves and feeling guilt and shame for like, why can't I cope with this and taking on all of that blame. And a lot of the time I feel like in therapy, our role as therapists is to actually unpack some of the societal issues um, that are placed upon women. Yeah, there's a a thing they talk about is like um, weird cultures have weird expectations and weird being Western, educated, industrialised, rich, democratic nations, that weird nations have weird expectations. I remember like when you're talking before about the impact of um, the media and and things that we see, I remember, um, this is showing my age, is um, on Friends when Rachel had a baby, it went from being friends to friends with a bassinet in the corner. Yes. Yeah. Nothing changed. Nothing yeah. changed about the dynamic in the friendship. It was everything was exactly the same. And she just had a baby as a handbag with her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because yeah. on tell, it's reminding yourself that I don't know anyone who had a baby and their life went from being their life to their life with a bassinet in the corner. Um, but we, it's reminding ourselves that that's exactly it is on television programs. Babies are plot points, not human beings. And, and they just, they only make a noise when it's convenient to have someone leave the scene or come back on the scene. And the natural habitat for a baby, we carry mammals. Humans are carry mammals. So the natural habitat for a baby is in their parents' arms, in their mother's arms, you know, because it's like the, the chest area of, of a, a lactating woman. It's like Kmart. It's got everything that that baby needs. It's got, you know, it's where their food comes from. They've got all the sensory stimulation that they need. They've got all the attention that they need. They've got all the vestibular input that they need. They're getting so much rich input in that space. And it's like that as a carry mammal is where babies are designed to be. But we have a culture that does not support a woman spending 17 hours a day with their babies in their arms. So, Amanda, I think this would probably be a good point to jump back into, you know, our kind of circle model. We got a little (laughs) bit carried away, but I think that's fine. Um, Can you explain to us a bit about that third system, that soothe system? And I guess one of the things I'm particularly interested in hearing your thoughts about or this population, neurodivergent women, how can women continue to activate a soothe system or engage in that soothe system 
if part of the experience of having a new baby is activating their threat system, and what I'm thinking about in particular is sensory overload, feeling overwhelmed, overstimulated, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on some of that. So coming back to that circle model where we had our red threat system, our drive system, which is actually our blue system, and they're both those run systems, run away, run towards. And then we have our third system, which is the third circle, which is our green circle, is our soothe circle. And in the same way, our red circle was our fight or flight. Our green soothe circle's got lots of little handy um, phrases we can use to remember its purpose. So it runs on oxytocin and opiates. Oxytocin is a really important hormone in the perinatal period. It's linked to contractions during labor. It's linked to the letdown of breast milk. Uh, and it's the hormone, it's often called a hormone of bonding. People call it like the love hormone, and it's not really accurate in terms of it doesn't capture all of what oxytocin does in that oxytocin is an interpersonal amplifier. It's an affiliative amplifier. So it helps to increase our sensitivity to interpersonal interactions, which is supposed to help us to bond and feel cared for and feel loved. But if you're someone who struggles with interpersonal interactions and struggles in that space, it can also make, make the perinatal period a period where you're quite heightened to interpersonal distress, which is very, very important for us to think about with our neurodivergent populations. Um, so that Soothe Circle has lots of little names that we can use for it. So one of them is our rest and digest in the same way that our drive circle is responsible for appetite and sexual arousal, our green soothe circle is responsible for satiety um, and feelings of satisfaction. And so our green soothe circle actually down-regulates libido, down-regulates appetite and those sorts of things as well. Um, but it helps us to, so we've got that rest and digest, sometimes called our stay and play. It's a system where we feel safe to kind of stay and play. And it's also called our tend and befriend. As I said, it's linked to that interpersonal affiliation side as well. So one of the challenges for neurodivergent populations is it's really can be really hard to activate that soothe system um, to the same degree as what neurotypical people might find. And that can be because, as I said, interpersonal affiliation can be something quite tricky. And so it can mean that that system can be a little bit harder to activate. And so we want to look at some other things we can do to really look at that sensory regulation and sensory overload, because what can happen is, especially with too much sensory input and too much oxytocin activation, for neurodivergent individuals can actually mean it triggers their threats system rather than their soothe system. So while for a neurotypical mother, they might actually find the experience of having their newborn on their chest for extended periods of time and contact napping and their baby stroking at them and um, might be something that they find very pleasant, for an autistic mother, they might actually find that very overwhelming. So we want to look at some of the strategies that you can use to manage that. Perhaps it might be most helpful if I even just run through some of the things that I do to manage sensory overwhelm, just from a really practical perspective. The first one is do what is needed, not what is expected. Because as we said, one of the biggest barriers to actually doing things that are helpful, if you think that people are going to think you're weird or that people are going to think that what you're doing is wrong. So my number one go-to tool for building a sensory toolkit for a neurodiverse or for any parent, because hyperarousal is something that also women who've experienced birth trauma, I often do a lot of this work of building a sensory toolkit for anyone who's got a heightened sympathetic nervous system in general at all. Um, but my very number one tip is earplugs on noise-cancelling headphones. Babies are loud. 
and they are noisy. They are noisy. And this, again, comes back to that idea of how can we honour the needs of babies and parents. Um, so safe sleeping guidelines recommend that babies sleep in the same room as a primary caregiver for the first 12 months of their life. That is the safest place for a baby to be is on a separate sleep surface in the same room as a parent day and night. But babies are noisy and they snort and they grunt and they grizzle um, and they cry. And when they cry, they can be very, 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 very loud. Um, you need to be able to hear your baby's cries. You do not need to be able to hear them at full volume. So it is perfectly acceptable if you have a sensitive sympathetic nervous system, if you have sensitive hearing and you're noise sensitive, get yourself some really good noise cancelling headphones, get yourself some um, earplugs. It's not about I'm going to put my earplugs in so I can ignore my baby. It's I'm going to put my earplugs in so I can stay present with my baby. Particularly for night waking, the presence of earplugs can be really great because it means that you can activate that threat system enough to get you going, to get you out of bed, to get you to tend to your baby and shift you into that drive system of what does my baby need, um, but without over overstimulating you so much that you start to panic. And then once your baby goes back to sleep, then you're lying there awake for three hours because you're super heightened. So we, what we want to do is be able to look at what are some of the things I can do to keep these rooms dark and quiet and calm as possible while also um, meeting your needs. Lots of autistic mothers find the sucking noises and the because um, babies are very, babies are really wet as well. Like they, and, and mothers are really wet. You know, you often you're, you're bleeding, you're leaking, um, you can be lactating. And if you're someone who is tactile sensory, that can be a really unpleasant experience. So the second thing can be looking at making sure you're really well stocked with things like muslin wraps and terry toweling squares and those sorts of things. I live in beautiful Queensland where it's lovely and warm. And it means that, um, Lots of times babies can, mums can be very sweaty. Um, so making sure that you invest in things like breast pads that will absorb um, so you can keep your, your breasts dry um, rather than sticking wet. And that's good for you anyway, just from a personal hygiene and personal care perspective um, can be really beneficial from that. And, and oftentimes like um, the disposable breast pads and things can have quite a smell to them because of the absorbent gels in them. So a lot of autistic mothers find that cloth breast pads and microfiber breast pads don't get that same unpleasant odor to them. And sounds like an investment in air conditioning is a really good one too. Absolutely. And if you don't, this is one of those things too about where we've got to come up with solutions that meet the needs of the clients we're working with. So absolutely, if you've got the money to splash out on an aircon, go for it. But even then, if you don't, or even if that's not enough, having things, I've got lots of women who find buying a bunch of um, cold packs that you can put in the freezer and wrap in a tea towel so that you can actually put a cold pack in the small of your back to cool you down while you've got this really hot baby on your front, just to kind of give you some more pleasant sensory input other than that heat. Um, babies really love skin to skin, but and babies spend a lot of time at breasts. But if a baby is getting skin to skin contact at the breast, um, a mother, if you're set, if you're tactile sensory to that sticky sensation, just putting a very thin muslin cloth between you and your baby and perhaps providing that skin to skin by your bare hand on the baby's bare back rather than from their chest onto your chest um, or putting a muslin cloth over your forearm because this forearm part might get very sweaty and you've got baby's wet, sweaty hair while they're feeding is going, oh, I don't actually need to feel that. And my baby doesn't need to feel that in order to be able to feed well. I can actually moderate that for my own needs to be able to manage. So that's where having some of those um, 
cloths. And again, making it a priority for yourself to make sure you've got enough clothes for yourself. It's really when you go to a baby shower, babies get so many clothes. But if you're a mum and you're sitting there and you're like, I feel sweaty and, and sticky and smelly and leaky and milky and I it just is going, it's like if you need to and you have the capacity to change your shirt as much as you need to in order to be comfortable, if you having if having dry hair and clean hair is really important to you, make that a priority. It's okay for you to prioritise those sorts of things. Yeah, and as you're speaking, Amanda, I think it, it, it sounds like, and I guess it's just highlighting the importance of actually being aware of and attuned to A, your own sensory needs, but B, even broader than that, what do you need as a human being? You know, because I think a lot of times um, when we think about motherhood and and pregnancy, you know, again, we have this cultural narrative that the needs of the mother become suddenly less important than the needs of the child without realising that actually they're completely interdependent and interlinked, you know, particularly in that early uh, life phase. Um, You know, so being aware of what are my needs? What do I need to feel comfortable? What do I need to feel like I'm at my baseline? You know, I'm feeling not over aroused or over escalated or dysregulated and making that a priority to figure out how can I kind of incorporate that into my care with my child. One of the things that um, you've, you've touched on there, Amanda, but I'd love if you could kind of explain in full, can you talk us through the strategy that you suggest when um, having bub on chest is overwhelming and it feels like I maybe need to pick or I maybe need to self-harm during that period to be able to tolerate that sensory overload of having baby on me. Yes. So as I said, because we carry mammals, oftentimes women will find themselves with a baby on their chest for extended periods of time and may find themselves sort of stuck on a couch or stuck on their bed or um, or just in, in that that space and then what can happen is particularly this is where it's looking at pre-existing coping strategies that can come up is skin picking can be a really common thing particularly on thighs or upper arms because they're accessible even when you've got a baby on you and so sort of stimming behaviors to regulate yourself is making sure that you actually have this is again that non-judgmental acceptance like oh i'm going to need to stim because i'm going to be really bored or i'm going to have that sort of overwhelm of having this person on me so making sure you've got access to fidget toys that you can stim with or sensory sensory toys and sensory tools that work for you um and then it can also be that putting in place some safety um, competing behaviours or, or barriers in there too. So making sure you've got, it might be having things like a light lap blanket to cover your lap so that you aren't tempted to just um, skin pick, but you're not going to put that behaviour down if you haven't got a different behaviour to pick up. So going, it's no good just having the lap blanket if then your hands have got nothing to do. So making sure you've got those little fidget toys. Babies often come with lots of little rattles and little um, fidgety, gadgety things that they like to play with too. Um, so it can be that sort of thing of looking at when you're having a baby shower of getting people to gift you all of the things that you need um, rather than all of the things that your baby needs. Um, Again, looking at some of those, just to talk more about some of the sensory things that we can do, um, if you're finding having a baby there and needing that proprioceptive input for yourself, having things like I've got I've got them here in, in my house I've got I call it a torture mat um <laughs> it's a spiky mat it actually comes with a headrest like a foam roll headrest that's really really spiky as well I don't know what the proper names for them are do either of um, you I've I've got one too actually it's called a shakti mat 
the one. Um, so I use the neck roll from that. And I often find lots of um, women will find this is actually using it as a foot rest. So when you're stuck feeding is actually being able to roll and use it as an acupressure foot massager to be able to give you some competing input. If you're looking for sharp sensation rather than picking or self-harming is being able to give yourself some non-damaging sharp sensory input to act as a competing input for yourself there when you're feeding baby. So having something like that, and also putting that sensation at your periphery, if you've got lots of um, sensory input, and that's a great strategy even for thinking about pregnancy and, and labor and uh, birth as well, is having inputs that you can do. There's a friend of mine who runs a, she's a, a midwife and um, doula, and she talks about the idea of like birth combs, actually using the, the prongs of a comb to kind of squeeze to give you sensory input into your peripheries, actually helps to pull your attention away from your core, which is often where a lot of the sensory input and sensory sensate, like, you know, contractions. But even during pregnancy, if you find the baby moving around, something that's quite distressing, engaging in some attention shifting strategies by providing inputs at your periphery. That's another thing that we can do when we're looking at dyadic strategies for managing a baby's need for skin-to-skin contact or parental care contact. If you find having a baby at your center of your body distressing is going, can I place my baby? Um, It's really hard to describe on a podcast of, of the position of being able to sit with your knees raised and put your baby on your thigh face down so that you can actually put them in a nice posturally stable position. They're getting that same input and you can meet that need for skin to skin while getting them off your chest for a bit, particularly if you're alone and you don't have another caregiver to give them to. It can just be that. How do I step back without stepping away? I love that stepping back without stepping away. Um, And I think that is a concept that a lot of mothers find incredibly freeing because rather than having that kind of, you know, well, I'm either fully engaged with my baby and I'm fully focused on their needs or I've stepped away and that's when I can focus on my needs. Um, Again, we're coming back to that breathing underwater analogy, right? How can I take a step back while not stepping totally away? Yeah, and I think just monitoring like both parties' needs, like really having in mind where am I at, you know, in terms of my window of tolerance, where's the baby at or the child at in terms of getting their needs met. And if you have these sensory strategies and you know about them, you know about your sensory needs, you know that they're really important in maintaining your window of tolerance and helping you not to burn out as quickly, then you can, you know, just constantly be putting those strategies into place. And it's so interesting because actually in my 20s, I would tell friends like, oh, you know, if I ever have children, I just know that I'm going to need to wear noise cancelling headphones because I just can't stand the noise of hearing children cry. (laughs) Um, And that was even before I knew I was autistic. I was like, yup, like I'm going to need this and it's okay to need that. Not even knowing why, if that makes sense. So there's, there's actually, there's no rules. Like there's all these things where like, the number of times I'll suggest strategies to parents and they're like, am I allowed to do that? There's no rule that you're not allowed to breastfeed in the shower. So the number of parents who I have is like, I'm just itching for a shower, but my baby's really clingy. It's like, you know, you're allowed to take your baby in the shower. Like that's actually allowed. Like, so if you need that, if you need that because you're feeling sweaty and sticky or or because you just need it, to, like that's your go-to and you can feel like you're, it's like, 
you know you're actually allowed to do that. If you can keep, you know, it's about putting in place some basic safety strategies, but there's absolutely no reason why you can't sit on the floor of your shower and breastfeed your baby so that you can have the 20-minute shower that you need rather than say, I'm going to put my baby outside the bathroom, race in, and I'll race through the shower really quickly. It's like, actually, there's no rule that says you can't do that. There's no rule that says you're not allowed to wear headphones. There's no rule that says you have to listen to children's music. My kids have never listened to the Wiggles ever. There's no rule that says I have to enjoy, like, or engage in children's music. Something, uh, Amanda, that you have talked about previously, I know, um, and on previous podcasts, and it's something that you work a lot with mothers around, is actually balancing that very valid need a role of anger in motherhood. And, you know, we know anger is a boundary setting emotion. I would love if you could just talk us through uh, a little bit around how we balance anger and try and actually counter overreactiveness with addressing underreactiveness. I'd love if you could chat through that with us. Yeah. I think, again, this comes back to shame. We are so, we have such strong expectations of what it means to be a good mother, what it means to be an available parent. And it means that what can happen is the experience of rage in the perinatal period is really, really common. It's, um, it's probably one of the most common experiences and still one of the most stigmatized experiences because, as you said, Michelle, like we normalize anxious mums. Anxious mums are funny. Um, or just expect it's like, oh yeah, you're meant to be worried. You're meant to worry about your kids. Depressed mums, sad mums, we kind of pity and feel sorry for. But angry mums, angry mums are dangerous mums, angry mums are crazy mums, angry mums need to be separated from their children. We sort of demonize still um, the anger in, in the perinatal period. But anger is really functional. It does, it, it tells us something. It's usually there for a purpose. And it's usually there to say enough. Enough. And what happens is I think we still have narratives about it's a, a good mother puts her children's needs above her own. Good mothers are self-sacrificing um, and good mothers don't say no. Good mothers do whatever their children need. Um, and we feel that in doing that, we're somehow serving our children and being good to our children. But it's not. It's not healthy. It's not helpful. And there's, there is actually anger and our children feeling our frustration, feeling our boundaries is a healthy and helpful thing for them. It's that idea of actually modeling healthy boundaries, modeling what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a boundary and to know that, oh, I can have a parent set a limit without my mum can be angry without being scary um, mm. is really important because if you grow up and the only experiences of anger that you have are ones that feel unsafe, that's actually not helpful. So in under-responding to our anger and not expressing anger in healthy and helpful ways means that inadvertently what we can do is mean that our children's experiences of anger feel very uncontrolled and very scary. Um, so we want them to actually have more experiences of healthy, helpful anger. And that can often mean setting boundaries more clearly and sooner and holding those boundaries to protect your needs so that you don't over respond. So, for example, I often see um, like with breastfeeding that you might have breastfeeding behaviors that mums can't tolerate, like nipple twiddling. Oh, 
yuck. Nipple twiddling is something that lots and lots of babies and toddlers love to do. And it's incredibly irritating for anyone, but particularly if you're sensory sensitive, having a baby twiddling is, can be something where it's like, I am going to really going to rage about this. But if you sit and tolerate that and you don't set in place behavioral boundaries that say no enough, enough is it means then what we can do is tolerate, 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 and then go, okay, you need to get off me now. And so not expressing that and not setting those boundaries can mean then that we're more likely to lash out um, or over-respond because, and the same even with noise and things, tolerating too much noise, too much noise, getting sensory overwhelmed, and then dysregulating. And, and expressing those emotions in ways that are less controlled. And parents can sometimes be confused by this and say, oh, I can't do that. Like I can't set, like that's not going to work for me or my baby won't do that or that's not possible. Um, but it is one of those things of consistency and practicing it. And like, I broke my arm when my youngest son was nine months old and I continued to breastfeed him with a broken arm. But it meant that there needed to be a hell of a lot of rules about what was and wasn't acceptable. And it was just that way of going, this is not negotiable. In order for me to be okay, you cannot kick at my arm. In order for you to be fed, you have to be fed in this position or it's just not going to happen. And so sometimes it's that thing of recognizing if you just make it non-negotiable of my needs, my needs don't matter more than your needs, but my needs matter just as much. And that this is something I'm allowed to make it non-negotiable for my own well-being. And I think it also really speaks to how we conceptualize anger. Like even when it's so interesting, because even when you're talking through all of that and you're saying, you know, using the word anger and um we have to express our anger, we have such a narrow idea that anger is inherently rageful. And I feel like that's just because for a lot of us, that's the only example of anger that we've ever seen. Whereas when we realize that anger is such a normal and healthy emotion and being able to say to our children or, you know, our romantic partners or whoever, but particularly children for that modeling um, purpose, as well as our own needs. Yeah, I am angry when you did that and that's okay. It's going to be okay, but here's the boundary and here's the rules right? A lot of us never had that experience. And so I love that you were talking about how important that modeling side of it is too, to really de-demonize anger. So just touching on that, I would like to take the opportunity to express some of my anger that I have about the state of perinatal health and mental health care across the world. And I feel like there's a lot of good reasons why women get to the point where they're actually feeling that maternal rage um, that is so stigmatized. And we've talked through a lot of different societal factors that sort of, I think, lead us to that path of feeling like we can't have boundaries, we can't have needs. It's weird to do things for ourselves as women or parents that actually help us cope. So I think it's really good to legitimize feelings of anger around some of these things. Yeah, because it's important. It's important for us to talk about this so it doesn't get to the point of having that explosion. I think it's that thing too is when we get to that point is recognize, like you say, is that often anger is that expression of enough this is enough um and so sometimes it is that something something needs to stop there is something going on here that is in, intolerable and unbearable and in the perinatal space often it can be self-criticism 
And it can be those internalized over expectations. And it can be putting that pressure on, you know, why won't my baby stop crying? Why am I not better at this? So if you've got that going on in your head, like there will be that sense of enough, but it's not enough, go the F to sleep. It's okay, who, what do I need to let go of in this moment? What is it that I'm holding on to that I need to put down? And often it is a societal expectation um, rather than the baby. Like you said before, Michelle, put down the patriarchy. the one other part that we need always need to touch on when we're talking about emotion regulation and particularly anger and, and dysregulation in the perinatal period is strategies to make sure when we do hit that breaking point that you have a plan to keep you and your baby safe and that's again where it's what, what do we need to let go of is the expectation I need to do what I need to do rather than what's expected um, no baby has ever come to harm because they were left somewhere safe while a parent re-regulated so Amanda, what would be your strategies for creating some of those safe spaces to leave your child, for instance, while you go re-regulate? What are some of the things that you usually suggest to clients to kind of manage that de-escalation in the moment? So the first thing is about recognizing that that's really important. And as I said, no baby has ever come to harm because they've been put somewhere safe and a parent walked away for a moment. When babies do come to harm is when parents do not give themselves that grace. When you do not give yourself the grace to say, it is okay for me to take some time in this moment to get myself okay. So creating a safe space for your baby. For newborns, it's often is just their sleep space. Being able to put a baby in a in their cot in a um, on a safe sleep surface so that you can take a moment to step away and, and calm yourself down. Once babies get a little bit bigger and a little bit more mobile, it can be harder to find a safe space. Again, it, it could be a cot um, if, if they've got a, a cot that they can go into. And again, it's okay for them to be distressed. But when you're distressed, being around someone who's distressed is distressing and it's okay if you need to regulate you first so that you can regulate them. Again, if you're underwater, if you are drowning and you need to take that breath is you cannot parent if you're drowning. It's okay for you to go, in order for me to be able to regulate them, I need to turn to me first. So having a cot can be a great space. I'll often recommend to parents as well, particularly this is when you're looking at second and subsequent children, is you may have the, the split demands of caring for a toddler and a newborn, creating a yes space for a toddler. So a yes space is a space that is just a space that's free from risk. I often think like a nursery can often be one of like can be if you focus on that in the antenatal period and immediate postpartum period of getting a nursery that's not overly decorated, that is, you know, it can be a little bit like jail cell like actually i think it's one of those things as psychologists our offices are often yes spaces you know we create them in such a way like in my office all of my books are high enough off the floor that that toddlers can't pull them down um that everything that's low enough for them to reach is stuff that they're allowed to reach so that i can have a space that i'm quite happy in and that it's a yes space for those toddlers i have that space in my office where i have a plant that i can pick up and i can put it on my desk so they can't reach it and then it's a yes space and I love that idea, Amanda, of having a yes space in your house where you can just almost give yourself that permission that I don't have to be worried about danger when they're in this space. Yeah. And either I can stay with them in their space knowing that they're safe and move myself from my th threat circle into my soothe circle. Um, and it's that thing too when we look at, um, I talk about the idea of help seeking. 
And that sometimes a really great source of help seeking is our past or future self. So it can be one of those things where I can reach back through time to my past self to say, thank you for creating a room there. It's safe for me to leave my child. And I can come in and my past self can have done that threat analysis for me with a calm mind so that my current self who is overwhelmed can just go, oh, we're safe here. I love that. Help seeking from your past self. That's incredible. Yeah. And your future self as well, leaving things for them to do, but Mm -hmm. it's okay. And that's often one of the challenges is if you think your future self is just as overwhelmed as what you are, it gets hard. And so sometimes partners might suggest that going, just leave it. Like, Who am I leaving it for? I'm leaving it for me and I'm already overwhelmed. (laughs) So that can be a really important question to assess. Just leave it. It's like, well, who am I leaving it for? But yes, reaching out to our past or future self to be a, a good source of support for us. But also help seeking is a really important thing to have a quick chat about as well is because that can be a challenge for um, for any new parent when we have those expectations that I should be able to do this, I should be better at this, I shouldn't need help. It's recognizing that everybody needs help um, and that we all do have different capacities and we all have access to different levels of support systems around us too. And as we know, because of the genetic heritability of neurodivergence is often neurodivergent babies have neurodivergent parents who have neurodivergent grandparents. So your social supports may not actually be um, particularly have have heaps of capacity to support you too so looking at who what what the village looks like um, we can get really creative with that I've got lots of parents who their gym crèche is a really important part of their village. Even I've got one client who used to go to the gym three times a week just to have a shower. Uh, she didn't use any of the exercise equipment. There was a free crèche, so she'd put her baby in the crèche and go and have a shower and then go back and get her baby. And that was working on her health. So that was an absolutely valid way for her to use her gym membership. So getting creative in some of those things. Uh, HelloFresh or a meal preparation service that takes the mental load of meal preparation from you might become a part of your village. Click and collect might become a part of your village. So thinking creatively about what are some of the things that I can do um, to access some of those help seeking uh, in this perinatal space to lower the bar, lower the bar again, kick the bar under the bed. That's the goal. I really feel like neurodivergent women benefit so much by actually being diagnosed um, and recognized before embarking on a parenthood journey. If you know that you're neurodivergent, you know what your sensory needs are, you know that you're prone to burnout and you can really put in place those supports and those specific strategies like before going on that journey, I feel like that is so helpful because so many of the parents um, that come to us in therapy are people who uh, haven't been diagnosed as many women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s aren't. And they've been through hell, um, really trying to fit themselves into, I think, some of those neurotypical expectations of motherhood and parenthood and not knowing that they have sensory differences or sensory needs. And yeah, it's just such a shame. And like, of course, whenever you do end up getting diagnosed or picked up and then you can unpack all of that and bring those strategies in, that's wonderful. But we're missing so many women before this key transition and we really need to do better. Yeah, I think I think that absolutely the need for identifying and diagnosing women before they enter the perinatal period, but 
also, I think it's a really big flag for the need for differential diagnosis in the perinatal period. Not just assuming that every woman who lands in front of you is um, has a diagnosis of postnatal depression, um, particularly looking for that trauma, looking for a differential diagnosis of PTSD, and particularly with this hyperarousal, it's going, is this trauma? Is this ADHD? ADHD is probably the most commonly missed one that I would see where I have um, parents come to me with second or subsequent children and describe their previous history, tell me about their developmental history and things. And I'm like, do you know that you have ADHD? Like, are you aware <laughs> this is something that's going on for you? Because especially yeah. if it's like, oh, I'm overwhelmed and they feel like it's a lack of skill where it's a lack mm. of capacity. I think having screening for neurodiversity in mental health practitioners and physical health practitioners that work in the perinatal space would be really important too. Like actually screen your clients for this because if women who are neurodivergent are more likely to have previous mental health conditions, be more vulnerable to birth trauma, and then potentially be vulnerable to those previous conditions coming back, like in parenthood, then there could be, you know, more neurodivergent individuals in that perinatal space than is currently being recognized. So screening is important. Antenatal screening, postnatal screening, um, better differential diagnosis. We don't use great, we don't have great tools. We don't use great tools um, for perinatal specific presentations. Um, and a lot of the screening that happens in the perinatal period is very, very blunt tools that we're using in that space. Um, and it's one of the things that I'm continually advocating for is, I think it's one of the things that separates clinical psychologists and our, and our background in, in that clinical training is that looking at mechanisms of not just what the symptoms are, but what's the mechanism, what's the function, what's the underlying thing that's going on here that's contributing to this. One of the things that we haven't really talked about is executive functioning and executive functioning difficulties in the postnatal period are incredibly common, um, both for neurotypical parents and for neurodivergent parents, because the load on the system that comes in the perinatal space as that mental load but combined with, you know, the world is harder when you haven't had a solid night's sleep. Mm -hmm. um, so sleep difficulties. And again, some of these things that have huge overlap or additional complications for neurodivergent individuals, like sleep, sleep difficulties are something that often is exacerbated or compounded by neurodivergence uh, in that perinatal space. But looking at what are some of the things that we can do from an executive functioning point of view, and I'm going to go through this super speedy, my little four-point plan, which is eliminate. And it comes from a business management kind of program, like the four-hour work week is that idea of eliminate what's the stuff I don't need to be doing, actually just don't need to care about. Um, so eliminate, automate. What are the things that I'm doing that could just happen automatically um, or through habit formation, delegating? What am I doing that actually is not my job? And that can be that division of mental load. Uh, it can be also the recognition that domestic labor is not parenting. That is a huge one making the beds, doing the laundry, doing the washing, meal preparation, none of those are parenting tasks, none of them. They are domestic labour and they belong to both parents. They are not mothering tasks. And um, to older children as well. I think, you know, a lot of parents who have, you know, we kind of touched on this earlier, but, you know, parents who have children, multiple children of, of different ages, um, it can be, again, that kind of hyper uh, vigilance of to be a good mother, I have to do everything. I have to be the one that is taking care of every single thing. When a child gets old enough, there's actually a lot of jobs they could do. There's a lot of things that they can take the load from. 
And again, that can kind of bounce off some of the issues around control and flexibility um, because the way a three-year-old packs a dishwasher is going to be very different than the way a 33-year-old packs a dishwasher. But it's that thing of going, it's actually fine if you get a three-year-old to pack the dishwasher. You can, they can do, they can reach because dishwashers are usually low to the ground. Um, (laughs) But it is that looking at expectations and, and changing those ideas. So there's that eliminate, automate, delegate, and procrastinate. Do the things that matter most and anything else choose on purpose to leave it to the side and that's where it also becomes that what am I doing what am I putting on a list so I always say to my clients a to-do list that not is not doable is a shame list and that in the perinatal period a doable to-do list gets very short it might be what is the one job I'm going to do before lunch and what is the one job I'm going to do after lunch because yeah it's it's not doable it's not a to-do list I love that and I often talk to clients around how that, you know, that exact idea of our to-do list just become this really aggressive, mean kind of list of everything that we're not doing or that we can't do or that we don't have capacity for. Um, And I think something, again, you know, going back to that idea of things that we use as strategies, you know, in and of itself, a to-do list is helpful, helps us keep track of things, helps us externalize what we need to do so we don't have to hold that in our mind. But when we become, you know, I have to put everything that I should be doing on this list of paper that's essentially just glaring at me undone from the corner. It's not helpful anymore. And it's a shame list. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it is that, um, that space. And with the executive functioning, I think the other thing that can often be, um, really difficult can be that kind of time optimism, the idea that you you can get so much more done than what you actually are capable of. And we can fall into that trap of having things as zero time tasks and being like, I need to get out the door. And it's like that, there's a lot. And when you have a baby, there's a lot that you need to do before you get out the door. Mm. Um, So just actually like leaving the house is no longer a zero time task. It is now a 20 minute task. And I think too, for ADHDers, you know, who often have that kind of time blindness, so not that kind of inbuilt intrinsic sense of how long will something take me it sounds like that would just be amplified in that perinatal antenatal space when you know you may actually have a handle on okay through lots of trial and error and lots of experience I have learned that this task takes me x amount of time now that's out the window now it doesn't take that amount of time anymore and especially those things, like I said, of, of breastfeeding. I have a friend who mm. says breastfeed, breastfed babies feed on the hour for an hour every hour. <laughs> so that's your expectation. <laughs> Probably not quite that much, but they, yeah. they, it's amazing how much time. And again, we don't talk about this as a culture and as a society because it's just life with a baby in a bassinet in the corner. But actually the time involved in caring for a newborn baby is huge. If you look at, you know, a baby should have between six and six to 11 dirty nappies in a wet or dirty nappies in a day, there's a nappy change. How long does it take to change a nappy? If you if it takes five minutes to change a nappy, you've spent a couple of hours already just changing nappies. And that's when they haven't actually exploded up their back and out the back of their um, their onesie. If, if a baby, you know, a newborn baby feeds on average 11 times in a, in a 24-hour period and a feed can take anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour, again, once again, you're going, there's a huge chunk of your day that is gone. Um, and so if you've spent now, you're looking at um, upwards 
upwards of seven hours just literally putting food in and taking care of what's come out of that baby. And that's before you've settled them, put them to sleep, before you've cuddled them, before you've comforted them, and not taking into account any of your personal care tasks. Um, so expectation management is the, probably the single biggest thing is just, yeah, lower the bar, low bar, low mm. bar, low bar. So, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, I know, you know, I found all your explanations of everything so accessible, so helpful, so practical. And I know that it'll be the same for many of our listeners. Can you just let us know where our listeners can follow you? So the easiest place to find me is either on Instagram or on Facebook um, and my website as well, which is all the same handle. It's Spilt Milk Psych. So S-P-I-L-T not spilled, spilt milk, <laughs> and then psych, P-S-Y-C-H. Um, spilt milk, psych, all one word, and that's on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and my website. Um, so, yeah, keep hunting there, and there will be some new exciting projects that I've got launching later in the year, so keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.